Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. The topic today is tips for successful glazing, and I, so I thought I, what I'd do is I just, these are sort of general tips, if you have, if you, and I know there are usually a lot of issues with glazing, so if you have questions, please bring them up, you know, whether we touch on them or not. I just made a list, of some of these are just sort of general hints that I found out over the years, so it may not be specifically like how you glaze the inside of the spout of a pitcher, and if you have a specific question, let's talk about it, but some of these are just sort of general ideas. And I've broken it down a little bit into somewhat into the different areas of the different steps that you do in glazing. So, you know, in terms of glaze preparation and, and this, sort of, this sort of thing. So we'll talk about it sort of in that, in that order. I guess the first thing I want to mention, which I've run into, I've taught in a number of studios and been in a number of studios over the years. And, the, 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 and it's almost like an obvious comment, but the biggest thing i found when people talk about the fact that they have problems with glazing is, take your time. So many people that I've run into basically don't like glazing, so they tend to rush through it, and they put all this time into making the pot, and whether it's hand building or wheel throwing, and trimming it, and all that, and then they sort of get to the point that they, I just want to get it glazed and get, you know, so they sort of want to like, you know, sort of forget the fact, and so they rush through it, and to me, you re if you really want to get good results and you want to get the dividends of all the time you've put in on the pot earlier, you really need to take your time. And so it, it takes some discipline, especially if you hate glazing, to do it. But it really is worth it because it, it does require and a, and a, a lot of attention to detail. And to me, you can, you can take a good pot and really louse it up with a bad glazing job. I mean, you can take a beautiful pot and really screw it up badly if you don't glaze it. And take your time and, and do you know, the same attention to detail that you've done up to that point. The other thing i found that's really useful in terms of screwing up or not screwing up pots is do small-scale tests ahead of time. Don't do your testing on your pieces that you love. And I do this a lot. If I'm making a, uh, doing a series of work on a piece of work, I'll do small-scale tests ahead of time. I'll make little maquettes, which are small like clay mock clay sketches, or I'll make test pieces. And I'll test the glazes, or I'll test the, 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 the decoration that I want to do, or the glaze combinations, or the colors, or all of those things, on the test pieces first. So I'll, I'll have made my piece maybe in its bisque fire, and then I'll say, okay, now I'm going to stop and I'm not going to rush through the glazing, and I'll do some tests to really decide what, you know, the glaze effects that I have in mind, are they going to work on this piece? So I would really recommend that. I, do, I mean, maybe I go to excess on the testing just because I like testing. But I found it really helps to step back a bit and don't test it on, don't say, well, I think I'll try this, and then when it doesn't come out, you put all that time into, you know, maybe what you otherwise think is a really nice piece. So I think it's really worth it, I think, to do some, do some small-scale tests. The other thing I try to do, for example, is whenever I do a glaze firing, I always have tests in the glaze firing. I make it a point to say that I'm not going to do a glaze firing unless I'm testing for something else in that firing so that I can take advantage of the firing. So, I'm, so I've, got, I've got different series that I'm working on in different stages so that I'm, I may be doing the finished firing of one series and I'm doing some preliminary glaze tests for another series that I'm starting to work on that I have in mind. And I found that really helps. Is I, I just sort of make it a personal rule. I'm never going to do a glaze firing without testing something. Even if it's just a new glaze that I have no immediate application for, I'll say, okay, I've wanted to test that glaze for a while. I'll make it up now, I'll make it a small kind of, and I'll get it into this firing. And then that might give me even ideas as to, when, if I get a glaze that isn't connected to a specific piece, 
It might give me ideas for work that I might say, wow, this is a great, this might look great on this kind of work. So that might even be a springboard for some work, and now I've already got a glaze test to sort of inspire me and give me some direction. So I found it, anyway, really useful. Another thing is, that I think is really helpful is, you really need to know or learn your glazes. You need to know just about the glazes themselves. And you know, I mean, you're, I'm sure, familiar with this, but different glazes work better on different clays. So it isn't just, so not every glaze works on every single clay body. So you need to really understand, you really need to do enough testing and, and use of a glaze to know what that glaze does. Does the glaze tend to run? Does, how does it work for overlaps? Does it, does it work on top of another glaze, but not under a glaze? Um, those kind of, you know, the sort of the peculiarities of a glaze. I mean, you know, you're probably familiar with when I say work better on different clays, like Randy's Red, for example, you may have all heard of common, but works better on colored clays. You don't get nice color on, on white clays. That's just, that's the way that glaze works. You need, you need to know that. Um, cop, cone 10, if you do cone 10 gas frying, like for copper reds, they work much better on porcelains than on colored clays. So you need to know that. If you want to get really nice copper red, reduction copper red, they do much better on porcelain than on the colored clays because the iron, in this case, the iron from the clay comes in and alters the effect of the color. And you don't get the bright reds on stonewares that you do on porcelain, for example. So again, so that's something you need to know about the glaze. And you also need to know, for example, <coughs> excuse me, copper reds run. So they, they, they flow a lot more than other glazes. So that you need to think about, okay, where am I going to place the copper red glaze on a pot, keeping in mind that I know it's going to run. And in order to get copper reds also, again, this, I'm picking on copper reds because it's a good example, is that copper reds need to be applied thicker than most other glazes. So, so you, you're fighting two things. In order to get good copper color, they need to be applied thicker than other glazes. But when you apply them thicker, they're going to run more. So you have to know that. So if you're really, if you're after the copper red color, you have to think about placement. Where can I put them? Where if they do flow a little bit, that'll be okay because I need the extra thickness so that I can get the good copper color. And that's just the glaze characteristics. That has nothing to do with what you need to do with the kiln in terms of reduction atmosphere to get the right conditions for the copper for the reduction. Another example of the opposite drink is like to know that most chino glazes, everybody familiar with what chino glazes? These are like high, high feldspar glazes, cone 10, Classic chinos, it's a classic Japanese. They don't run at all. They never run. So you don't. I mean, they, they and they do these weird things where they craze a lot and they crawl, and that's part of the aesthetic of the, of the chinos. But they, it's almost impossible to make a chino run. I saw an example years ago of a chino glaze. Now it had been multiply fired, but it had a chino glaze that was over a quarter of an inch thick, and it's just sitting there. And it was beautiful, it was sort of slightly textured, so, and they did multiple fires. You know, he put the, the, the potter put some on, fired it, put some more on as much as he could get on, fired it again. And the first and the first didn't run when he put the second on, and the second didn't run when he put the third on. It never runs. So that's that's useful to know in terms of in terms of placement and where you can do it. It's not gonna run. You can put it in the hottest part of the kiln, and it's not gonna run. Is it the Feldspar? It's the Feldspar. Make, when the, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but when the glaze actually melts, it makes such a stiff melt that it just doesn't, it barely moves. Which is also why it, has, it ends up with all these defects, like the crazing and the crawling, because it doesn't flow out and heal the glaze. Like a lot of glazes, you know, you get little pinholes or bubbles, and you want the glaze to flow, and if, you, if there's enough time in the kiln, you want it to heal all those little defects. And the, 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 the melt that forms when chinos melt is so stiff, it doesn't heal anything. 
So cracks and pinholes and bubbles and blisters and curls, they just stay there. So, and, there, and for instance, just as I mentioned also about running, while we're talking about that, um, another example of glazes that run more than others are these macrocrystalline glazes. You've probably seen those. These are the ones that have those sort of rosette, the giant rosettes of crystals. Those run like crazy, and they have to, because in order to form the crystals, they have to have a composition that's very low in aluminum oxide, which means they're going to run like crazy. So if you like those macrocrystalline glazes, where you get those big rosettes of crystals, it's going to be, the, the glaze is almost like water when it melts. And so when people do that kind of firing, they actually have to make special little, little cups and feet that the pots sit on, and they're, they're, they're disposable. They have, you end up knocking it off with a hammer and then grinding the bottom of the pot, because you just assume that the glaze is going to run right off the pot into some kind of a little catch basin. That's the only way. And if you don't, if you stiffen the glaze so the running doesn't have it, you don't get the crystals. So you only get the crystals because the composition is, it happens to be a really runny composition. And that's right, people that, actually people that generally <coughs> macro-crystalline glazes, they, they sort of specialize in it because there are, there are a lot of extra steps they have to do. They have to make separate little like, almost like stilts, little stilts out of clay on the bottom that, that the glaze can run onto. And then you usually put a cup under that to catch the glaze. You'll end up literally with a pool of glaze. And then you have to take a hammer and you knock the stilts off the bottom and then you grind the bottom, you grind the glaze off the bottom with the stilts were in contact with the pot. So and another, another last point about in these sort of general things is, something to keep in mind is, design your pieces with the glazing in mind as much as possible. I mean, ideally, somebody told me this a long time ago, and it took a long time to sort of absorb it, but when you put the clay on the wheel and you're centering it, you should be thinking about how you're going to decorate the pot. And for things, for instance, like, Whatever it is like, how am I going to hold the pot, depending on what the form is? How am I going to hold it? Do I need, a, aside from design considerations, do I need a, a sufficient foot ring? Let's say it's a bowl. Do I need, to, and I want to dip the rim, so then do I need to design a foot ring that I'll be able to hold and hold the bowl upside down in order to dip the rim? Or do I have a runny glaze? Do I need to include a groove, or at least a very prominent foot ring, that if the glaze runs more than I want to, I'll have a place to catch the glaze? So you really should be thinking about, this is another reason why it's really useful to work in series, where you, where the idea was you, you don't just make one one-off, you, you work on a concept or an idea and you develop it and it evolves. But then you can think about things like this. It's like, okay, if, if I, I have a general idea about how I want to decorate these pots, what, feature, what design features do I need to include to accommodate my glazing? Okay, so that's something to think about. It's like, are there, you know, tech, sort of more technical considerations aside from aesthetics, is there some, do I need to have something to hold the pot? Or, let's say I'm doing a covered form. Am I creating a lip or something that's going to be difficult to get the glaze, when I pour the glaze out, it's going to be difficult to get the glaze out? Or is the glaze going to dribble on the side of the pot when I pour it out? and I'm going to have to clean up the dribbles. Can I design the, the rim in a different way so that when I pour the glaze out, it pours out cleanly? So does that mean maybe the inside of the rim has a little sharper cut on it and less rounded so that I don't get, I don't get like a pitcher that, that dribbles whenever you pour it? And, it? and it might be something that somebody wouldn't even notice when they look at the pot, but you build it in. Glaze comp so we'll talk now about glaze compositions or just comments about glazing related to glaze composition. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize is that even if you pick one firing temperature, like cone 6, different recipes start to melt at very different temperatures. 
very different temperatures. So, and this, so that, and this, this relates to the firing schedule and how, and, and it, it, it shows up in the firing schedule. And I give you an example, for instance, like here's a, here's a recipe, I'll pass this around. This is a cone six glaze that I fired at 06. Okay, so you would say, okay, I don't expect it to much to have happened to it. And in this case, this is just a cone six amber, clear amber. And I just want to, this is what you normally would think of. This is, so a, a way under fired glaze, a cone six glaze fired at 06. And you can see the glaze is kind of powdery. It doesn't really rub off on your fingers too much. It's gotten, it's, it's, it's a little harder than that when, when I applied it, but it still looks like a grossly underfired glaze, okay? Here's a different recipe, the same thing. This is a cone six glaze fired at 06, and it's already pretty well melted at 06. And the thing is, different ingredients in the glaze recipe. So this is where actually, the more you get into glazes and you think about it, it really helps to understand and to look, and after all, to get some experience looking at the glaze recipe, because this will tell you maybe what you need to do um, in terms of how, how you can use them. For instance, when a glaze melts early, one of the things you have to think about is overlaps. If, the, if I have two glazes and one of them melts a lot earlier than the other one, that's going to affect the way those two glazes interact. And it also affects whether it's on top or on the bottom. But you, you've also probably heard this, this, the, the, this old sort of rule like, she know first or expect the worst, and yeah. there's some yeah. version of that. Yeah. Which means that if you're overlapping something with Shino, you always want, always want to put the Shino on first rather than put the Shino on top of the other glaze. And the reason for that is because usually the Shino starts to melt at a very different temperature than the other glaze. That's the reason for it. That's the and that's true for a lot of glazes, is that some glazes, if the melting temperatures are about the same, you put them together and, they, and, they, and they, they're very compatible. Um, and others not. Another reason, sometimes the effects of glazes that you like when you put one glaze over another, and you, you've ever seen it where one like, you put, let's say, a white over another glaze, and the white kind of floats and becomes sort of like a, a veil or a froth? That's due to the different melting points of the glazes. That the first glaze is melting and the other, and it's sort of drifting, and the second glaze is kind of drifting apart. And when it's melted, it's already kind of separated a little bit because the first glaze is melted. So some of these things that, that, come, that happen in a way that you don't like may be related to this difference in the melting, or they may be of the things you do like. Oh, the reason why this one melted, it, you know, looking at the recipes, the, this, this one that I held up first is just kind of a standard recipe. This is nepheline, sulfonite, whiting, EPK, silica, nothing special. This one has a lot of frit in it. Well, most frits that are used, which is powdered glass, most frits that are used in glaze recipes are earthenware temperature frits. So the frit component of this glaze is what started to melt at 06, even though it's a cone six glaze. So what that means is that this will continue to get heated up and eventually all the other ingredients will combine with the part that's already melted and I'll end up with a glaze that is mature at cone six. But part of it, the frit, is already melting at 06. So the minute you see a glaze that has a frit in it, it means it's going to do this. It's going to start to melt early. Okay, a um, couple more things, uh, things, things to think about in terms of when you're glazing is that the nominal cone rating for a glaze is only approximate. You know, we talk about these three firing ranges, like there's earthenware, low fire, there's cone six, and there's high fire or cone 10. That doesn't mean anything, really. 
A cone six glaze is not a cone six glaze, not a cone six glaze. All they mean when they say this is a cone six glaze, especially when they label things commercially or even the, the recipes in books. I've seen so many bad recipes in books. But just because you say cone six, what you really mean is not cone 10 and not earthenware. And a lot of cone six glazes would be really great at cone five or even four and a half or maybe seven. So you can't assume, especially if you're taking, if you're taking recipes out of a book, you can't assume that because it says cone six, it really is exactly cone six. I had, a, I had a really good example a number of years ago. I saw a really nice satin white made, white glaze that I really liked. Somebody had a sample of it and, I, and they gave me the recipe and they said it was cone six glaze and I fired the cone six and it was terrible. It was partly translucent and had some little bubbles and blisters in it which right away suggested it had been over fired and it wasn't satiny and it wasn't, and it wasn't even opaque. So it looked like it had been overfired. So I went back and I, 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 I fired it. I had cone sitting right next to it, so I knew exactly what had happened to it. So I fired it at cone five, and it was perfect. So one cone difference made all the difference, and it was beautiful. It was buttery and satiny and opaque and everything I had seen. One cone difference made the difference. And yet, you know, this was just called a cone six glaze. Well, it wasn't a cone six glaze. It was a cone five glaze. So that's something to think about also is that when you when you if you especially if you're pulling recipes from references or online or out of a book, just because they say it's cone ten or cone six or whatever, don't assume that. Because it may there may be a slight variation depend and, and because there are so many thousands of different glaze compositions, you wouldn't expect them to all fire exactly at a particular level. They can't almost. A couple other comments about glaze compositions is that just keep in mind that any glaze with ash, with any kind of wood ash in it, or soda ash is going to be really caustic, and you've got to watch your eyes. And you can burn your corneas because they are really, really caustic. You're probably aware that, you know, in the early days, soap was made by taking wood ashes and boiling and putting fat in it, and, and what you make is soap. And so it's live. So the, a glaze that contains wood ashes or soda ash is incredibly caustic. It can burn your skin, and some people have more sensitive skin than others, and it can burn your skin or at least you know, give you a, a skin irritation. But again, your eyes, it can really damage your eyes. Another comment just about glaze compositions in, in terms of this, it relates to the composition, but think about it in terms of firing. As you go from earthenware to cone six to cone 10, the glazes become less and less temperature sensitive as a general rule. Which means that earthenware glazes generally have to, you have to hit it right on the nose or it doesn't come out right. A lot of cone six glazes are a little more tolerant. Maybe a cone or two or half a cone up and down doesn't matter. And cone ten glazes usually you can go a couple of cones up and down. And that's because of the different co the general compositions of the glazes. So as you go higher up in temperature, they tend to be less temperature sensitive. So you don't have to be quite as careful about getting it right on the exact thing. But but cone six glazes generally are a lot more temperature, in general now, are more temperature tolerant, they have a wider range than the earthenware glazes. The earthenware glazes, you pretty much have to hit the cone right on the nose or it's not, they're not going to come out. Okay, just again, something to keep in mind. So if you're firing a cone, if, if you're firing different, let's say you're doing cone six and then you decide to try some earthenware, maybe you were able to tolerate a certain amount of, maybe your kiln had a hot, had a hot top and a cold bottom, which was okay for your cone six firings, it might not be okay for your earthenware fire now because one cone difference would be enough to make the glazes work or not work. We get away with it maybe with cone six. Okay. Uh, just to cut, again some more just general composition. If you're doing, if anybody's doing raw glazing or single firing, 
You need to have more clay in the glazes that you're putting on raw clay than you do normally to allow for the shrinkage of the, of the, of the glaze. Last thing I had here on the compositions is that if you have a glaze that has high clay, a lot of clay in the recipe, uh, this can very often lead to shrinkage and crawling. One of the, one of the crawling is one of the hardest <coughs> defects to, to diagnose because there's so many things that can contribute to it. One of the things that can contribute to it is a high clay content in the glaze. Because what happens is, when you apply the glaze to the pot, there's a lot of clay. Clay holds a lot of water. So now the glaze tends to shrink a lot when it dries. And if it shrinks sideways, that's one of the conditions that leads to crawling. Because it shrinks sideways, it loses its bond to the clay underneath it. It isn't as well attached, and that can lead to crawling. It doesn't guarantee crawling, it can lead to it. So, if, if you have a glaze, so this is where it really helps to, to have a glaze recipe also, if you can look at the glaze, and if you've got 30% clay in, a, in a, or something in a recipe, there's a, there's a light, there's a good possibility that you can run into crawling. Okay, mixing, some comments about mixing and glaze prep. So now you're making your glazes. One of the things I recommend is really, if you're making your own glazes, dry blend the powders really thoroughly before you, before you, you add them to the water. And this is really important if there's bentonite, speaking about bentonite, in the glaze. Because bentonite, when it gets wet, is really sticky and gooey. And, and one of the things that happens if you, don't, if you don't distribute and disperse the bentonite, you end up with white spots in your glaze. If you've ever made up a glaze, you end up with little sort of slightly matte white spots in the finished glaze. Those are lumps of bentonite that didn't get distributed. And so the, the, the way to solve that is, or way to, to help solve it is, Really dry blend the powder as well to get the bentonite powder really distributed and broken up so you don't have any lumps of bentonite, and then that, that will help anyway. Uh, so other, as a general rule also, especially if you have a, a, a glaze that has a lot of clay, is when you're making the, the wet glaze, add the, the powder to the water. And so what I do is I just made up one the other day. I, I look at the approximate volume I have of powder that I've just dry blended, and I take maybe a little, little and a half or only two-thirds of that amount of water, just eyeball it, and I'll sprinkle the, water, the powder into the water and stir it as I go. What that helps do is it helps eliminate lump formation. Yeah, you can get rid of the lumps later, but sometimes they can be a real pain to get rid of them. You maybe have to screen it several times. So if you add the powder to the water, the powder kind of gets wetter, all the little particles get wetter, and it's less likely to form lumps. Another thing, okay, now you've made up your glaze and you've, and you've made the water. When I make up the glaze, I don't, I don't bring it right to the final consistency. I make it up to the point where it's, I've screened it, but it's still thicker than I ever want to use it. I'll let it sit for a day or two, because the, all the little clay particles can't absorb all the water and everything that they want to right away, and it's going to get thicker if you let it sit. So there's no sense in adjusting it to the final glazing consistency right away. Assuming you had the luxury and you're not doing it the night before. <laughs> but, but, but if you can, if you have that luxury, let it sit for a day or two. Let, let the little particles soak up some more water and then do the final adjusting. Because otherwise, if you do it right away, you're going to find it there, so it's going to get thicker because it will have absorbed more. The little particles will have absorbed more water. So just let it sit. Uh, and then as far as adjusting the... The, uh, the, the thickness. You know, you've probably heard about the idea about specific gravity. Well, technically, specific gravity is the weight of something compared to the weight of an equal volume of water. That's the definition of specific gravity. But you don't have to get into all those number of things. There's a really easy way to do it. You take a little measuring cup or any little thing, 
and you, let's say you've made up a glaze and it's the perfect consistency. You love the way it works, and now you're going to make up another batch. Okay. Well, what you do is you take that the glaze that's perfect, and you take a certain amount of it, maybe a cupful or whatever, and you weigh it. And then whatever that weight is for that amount, that's what you shoot for in the future. So now I'm making up a new batch of the glaze, and I weigh it, and I take a cup of it, and I weigh it. And it's heavier than, the, than my previous weight. That means I, I don't have enough water. Because all, all the powders that you add into water are heavier than water. So if I have a mixture of powder and water that's heavier than what I want, it means I have too much powder and not enough water. Or if it's lighter than the, my reference weight, it means I have too much water and not enough powder. So I don't need to go into all the numbers. All I need to do is say, what do I need to do to make this new glaze, this cup of new glaze, weigh the same as this number that I had before? And that will, and that will give you the water and the powder proportions. Okay, you forget the numbers. The numbers don't matter. This is an easy way to do it. And by the way, hydrometers were never made to use for glazes. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for the Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. A couple of things now related to pre-made or existing glazes that are already existing. Now you've made up your glaze. One thing I've, I've found is, um, is people don't do, and especially in big studios when people are in a hurry, is they don't stir the buckets thoroughly. You really need to stir them to get up all the, the stuff off the bottom, and you need to find out whether there's a hard layer of mud on the bottom that needs to be worked up, because that's some of the ingredients. And one of the things that happens is when you stir the glaze, sometimes different ingredients settle out first, like rutile is famous for that. Rutile is the mineral, it's really heavy, and it tends to go to the, it's one of the first things to settle out of the glaze. So if you have a glaze where the rutile is an important part of the glaze, it's going to form a hard layer on the bottom of the bucket. And if you don't get it up into the glaze, your glaze is going to look fine, but the color or the, the optical effect is not going to be the same because all the rutile is stuck on the bottom. The other thing I suggest is if you're using commercial glazes in a jar, don't shake them. Stir them. Because shaking them doesn't do adequate mixing. What happens with commercial glazes and jars is the gum that's the, the brushing aid that tends to rise to the top, and shaking doesn't adequately mix it. So you end up with a lot of gum at the top and less glaze. The glaze looks thick, but you've actually got a lot of gum and not much glaze. And at the bottom of the jar, you don't have much, you don't have much gum, but you've got a lot of glaze. So you, you, don't, you can't thoroughly mix a glaze, but everybody's thinking, picking up ten to shake them. Don't shake it. Start. And you've got to make a point of bringing up the glaze from the bottom. This is true of underglazes also. Because the glaze tends to float, the, 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 the gum tends to float to the top. And it looks nice and thick and creamy, but you've got a lot more gum than you do glaze. So then you go to brush it on, you go, gee, it isn't as dark color as I thought it was, because it's mostly gum. So stir it, and, and bring it, you know, bring it up from the bottom when you stir it. It really makes a difference. And, I, and so then, even if you don't do this, this um, the, um, the um, 
specific gravity thing. You know the old finger test? I found over the years that really works really well. I'll stir the glazer and I dip my finger in it. And the idea is you dip your finger in and you want it to, when you dip your finger in, you want to be able to see the, the line around your fingernail and you want to be able to see the wrinkles or the creases in your finger through the glaze. If you clamp, the glaze is too thick. So I found if I dip my finger in and I can see, and I can see the coating, but I can see some of the detail on my finger, whether it's cone six or cone 10 or whatever, that's just about a perfect thickness it just about works, and your finger has to be dry, by the way. Okay, dry finger. Um, so you dip your dry finger in, and, and it just, it, I found it to be, even though it's, you know, it seems so common, but it seems to be a really reliable test. So I'll do that all the time. I'll dip it in, and especially in a, if you're working in a studio where there are other people, or you don't have direct control over the glazes, it's really a good idea before you stick your first pot in there to see what the consistency of the glaze is. Is it watery? Is it, is it, is it about right? Um, but, you know, and if not, you know, either you have to go to somebody and say, hey, can we do something about this glaze if you're not in control, or if you're on, you know, you can, you can make adjustments. But I found it's really, really handy. So now you've got, a, you've got a, you've a, a bucket of glaze, and if the glaze appears thin, you stir it up, and it seems to be watery, um, the first temptation might be to take some of the water off, is don't. Flocculate the glaze. Because that's the effect. When a glaze becomes deflocculated, it tends to look more watery and runnier than in the wet stage than it normally would be. So, and again, if it's your own glaze, you can do something about it, great. If not, then talk to somebody in the studio if you can. Uh, but, but that's what happens is, is don't take the water off. And the thing is, if you flocculate the glaze, and, and, it, and it is the fact that it has too much water, you don't hurt the glaze, you're not hurting the glaze at all. If you try to flocculate it, and nothing much happens, and it's still watery, then it probably does have too much water. I saw this, I was down at Glen Echo for years, and sometimes you'd get people, even though everybody knew they weren't supposed to touch the glazes, somebody would come and go, oh, it's too, you know, it's too dry, I'll add a little more water. You know, so you had things happening to the glaze that you never knew, which is why you checked them before you used them. But the first, if, if the glaze appears watery, your first reaction should be not to get rid of the water, flocculate the glaze. And you flocculate it, Flocculated by Epsom salts. Very Epsom salt. And and again, this goes back also. Is you you don't need to put automatically put Epsom salts in any glaze recipe. I've seen recipes where they include the Epsom salts. Don't do it because most glazes, when you make them up, are, are automatically flocculated when you first make them. Usually, what happens with time, they become deflocculated. And you always want to add the Epsom salts just by trying to, by the amount you need. You don't know. There's no way to tell how much you need to bring it back. So you add a little bit, you stir it, you add a little bit more, you stir it, and you'll see it. And, and, it, and it's dramatic if you've ever done this. When you add the Epsom salts to a blaze that's gotten deflocculated, you add a little Epsom salts, and all of a sudden it gets, it gets noticeably creamier, like latex paint. And when you stir the whole bucket, the creaminess goes away. You're done. I mean, typically in a, you know, 10, 15 gallon bucket of glaze, you might add two or three teaspoons of Epsom salt solution. You don't add the powder, you always add solution, you make a liquid of it. I keep a little jar, of, like a pickle jar, with water and Epsom salts, and you put in excess Epsom salts so that there's stuff, there's a layer on the bottom that hasn't been dissolved. <laughs> and that's why it always keeps the same composition, it always keeps the same strength. Okay, one final comment on pre-existing glazes. Again, a lot of this came from my experience at Glen Echo. Is don't scrape the glaze that's sticking to the side of the bucket back into the bucket. Because all you're going to do is make lumps. And I've had, I've also had people say that no, that when you're cleaning off your pot, if you have extra glaze, clean it off over the bucket to save the glaze. 
Don't do that either, because you're just making lumps. So you've gone to all this care to screen the glaze and get rid of lumps, and then you scrape the, the, the dried glaze off the side or shave it in there, and you're making more lumps. So what I do is I let that stuff build up on the side. Matter of fact, I try to be careful not to knock it into the glaze. And then when I make up a new batch of glaze, then I scrape it off and process it and run it back to the screen and clean out the bucket. But don't, it, you know, I, I, I actually go out of my way not to knock the stuff off the wall into the bucket to make lumps. Surface preparation. So now you've got your glazes. Uh, and just, you, you probably all know about resists, like wax, using wax resist. Um, and there, there are also, which is, you know, with, but there's also, have, you ever, have, have you all or any of you used latex resist? It's a removable resist. It's really handy if you're glazing and you want to, you want to cover, protect a surface <coughs> from glaze and then go back and do some more glazing and, and put glaze where you had the resist, is you, you buy latex resist and you paint it on, let it dry, and then you can do some glazing. Then you can peel the latex off and go back and put glaze where the, where the, where the, where the rubber, the, the latex rubber was before. So it's a removable resist. It's really handy in some cases. Um, Versus wax, which is, which is kind of, has to be burned off. A couple of recommendations. Um, I found it really useful. Okay, I've got I've got my bucket of glaze. It's ready to go, and I've got my my bisqueware. Is I always damp sponge the bisqueware before I glaze it. I always do, and it does two things. It, if there's any dust on the surface, it gets rid of the dust. And you probably all, dust is another one of the reasons things that can lead to crawling. Okay, so so but even if you even if you pre-wash the pots, it's still a good idea pre-dampen the pot before slightly with a sponge because what that does is there's a, there's a feature called wetting where the glaze is water and it, it won't necessarily actually make the surface of the pot wet when it first touches it. And you've all probably seen this in like when it first starts to rain and you look at your car, the water doesn't flow all over the car right away. It beads up and forms little puddles. That's a matter because the the the, the, gla the water the rain is not actually getting the surface of the car actually wet. It takes a or you, you notice the same thing. I, I notice this a lot when I'm driving along a road where there's dirt on the shoulder, and when it starts to rain, you get these little blobs of water, but it doesn't turn to mud right away. That's the same thing that happens when you dip your pot in the glaze. The glaze on a tiny little puddle <coughs> doesn't actually want to get wet right away. So if you pre-dampen the pot with a sponge. Water loves water, so it actually helps the glaze wet the pot. It's, it's called wetting. It actually called, helps the glaze wet the pot, and you'll get a better glaze application if the surface of the pot is ever so slightly damp. Not wet, but ever so slightly damp before it contacts the glaze. And along with this, you can also control, and this goes back to Judith's question in a way, you can control the glaze thickness by pre-wetting the pot. So suppose you've got a glaze Suppose you've got a glaze that's too thick. Um, and again, this is in a studio where you don't have control of the glaze, and the glaze does not have enough water in it. So you know if you dip your glaze in it, you're going to get a really thick glaze application. So the way around that is pre-dampen your pot. Do more than just slightly sponge it. Sponge it with a, a wetter sponge to make the pot slightly damp. It won't absorb as much glaze, and you won't get as thick a glaze application. So you can counteract the fact that you've got a glaze, you go, oh, this glaze is really thick, and yet you're not, you know, you're not empowered to, to thin it. Um, is just pre-dampen your pot a more, let it wet it, and then let it sit for a couple of minutes so the water soaks in. But it won't, it won't be as absorbent, and therefore it won't pull as thick a layer onto the pot. So you can compensate for that a little bit. 
Another, another hint here is if you have a, a pot that's textured, that especially has like fine grooves or little holes or something into it, before you dip it in the glaze, paint some glaze into those depressions. Because the problem is, if I have a, a highly textured surface, and let's say, let's say I've done some, some carving, and let's say here's my glaze surface, and I actually have something like a V-groove. I mean, this is microscopic, but a tiny little groove, tiny little groove in the surface. And if, when I put, when I dip this in the glaze, I'm going to trap air in here. I can't, when this all of a sudden hits the liquid glaze, uh, uh, this, this, uh, this, this cannot penetrate in here and displace. So I'm going to end up with a little air bubble in here, which means that when it dries, the bottom of the groove is not glazed. So what I do on a highly textured surface is I, I take a brush and I fill up all the grooves with the glaze first, or at least get some glaze down to the bottom of the texture with the brush. And then I'll take a sponge even and wipe it off the surface because I don't want it ever, I just want it in the bottom of the groove. And then I'll dip it in. But this really helps a lot with textured surfaces. Anything where you've got, if it's, you know, if it's a big, broad, let's say here's the pot wall, and if I've got a big, broad, you know, depression, something like that, then, okay, then the glaze can probably flow into it. But if I've got a sharp edge, or I've got something that looks like that, you know, like a groove, the, the, glaze, the, the, the air can't get out, because you dip it in the glaze so fast that you trap air in the bottom, and then you end up with all those little lines are unglazed. So paint the glaze into the lines first. Then you can be really sloppy. Just slop them on there. Get it, just get it bottom. And then wipe off the stuff that's on the top so that all you're left with is what's in the thing. And then dip it in the glaze. And it works great. And then just one final comment on surface prep is that if you apply underglazes and stains too thickly, that can cause crawling. One of the multitude, another one of the multitudinous things that can cause crawling because so underglazes and stains were really only supposed to be applied with a color effect, and a lot of them are very, the word is refractory, means they, they're very resistant, they don't melt, they don't do anything, and they actually almost like Teflon for glazes. So, and like chromium is a bad one, like a lot of cobalt, if you do like cobalt decoration, cobalt oxide or, or, or cobalt bearing underglaze, and you put it on too thick, the glaze will crawl when the glaze is over, because it can't, the glaze, again, doesn't, when it melts, it doesn't want to stick to that metal. The metal, the, the, the stain resists it, so it crawls. So you want to keep your underglazes and stains thin. It's especially true with chromium, green chromium oxide or with cobalt. They can cause crawling. Now iron almost never does it because iron wants to react with everything. But the cobalt and the chromium a lot of times don't. And so the glaze melts and it sits on top of it and the glaze, and it doesn't really get the, the, the pot underneath it wet, so the glaze crawls away from it. It pulls aside over your decoration. Okay, glaze application. Um, <coughs> One of, the, one of the things I've found really helpful is if I have really complicated shapes, I don't try to glaze the whole pot all at once. Or if I have a glaze, let's say I have a glaze that shows every defect. I was doing, years ago I was doing some, some large porcelain glazing. And I had to, the only way, I, and, and I, so I would pour the inside of the glaze, pour the, pour, and this was with celadon, which is a classic clear high temperature glaze that shows every little defect. So one of the things I would do is I would glaze part of the glaze, let's say I pour the inside, and then I, I'd clean off the top of the glaze on the rim, because I didn't want to overlap, and I'd wax over the old glaze. I'd let the glaze dry, and I'd put wax over it, down several inches on the side, or, or on the inside. And then when I poured the second glaze, I could get a crisp line 
between the new Blaze application and the old, and just the slightest little bit of overlap that was enough so that I didn't have a break in the glaze, but not enough to show me a line. So a lot of pots I've done where um, I, I glaze them in parts, depending on how I can pour them or how I can apply the glaze. I'll put part of the glaze on, I'll clean it off where I don't, where I splashed it, I'll wax over the glaze that I've already put on so I don't get more glaze there, and I'll wax the second part. So I've done, I've done things like this where I might have glazed a pot in two or three or four or five parts with just, and, and allowing just the slightest of overlap, a little tiny bit of the glaze sticking out from under the wax so the glaze looks continuous, but I don't, I don't see that obvious dark line from the, under, from the, from the overlap. And that's, and that's so, so don't assume, I guess, especially with complicated shapes, that, like a teapot, that you can just go whoosh into the, into the bucket of glaze and not have runs and drips. Well, another, reason not, you know, another reason to have a flocculated glaze, so you don't get runs and drips and everything. But it really helps sometimes is break it down into parts. Figure out the, the, the sequence of, the, of how you're going to glaze the different parts of the, of the piece and think about wax resisting, because it all burns off, you're not going to hurt it, but putting wax resist over the parts that you want to protect so you don't get overlaps on what you've already done. I found it really helpful. And as, as you're probably already aware of this, generally with closed forms, the semi-closed forms, you glaze the inside first, that's kind of the standard thing. So you glaze the inside first and then you glaze the outside. Um, but before, I just want to show you these as kind of a handy tool. These are great for, I put these, these just ank rod, I put these across a large bucket or a tray, and you can rest the pot on it, and then if you want to pour the glaze over it, the glaze drains away from these, and the pot is only resting on the barest of edge. So instead of using wooden sticks, if you use these, there's hardly any contact with the bottom of the pot. What are those? Just aluminum angle iron. Get them in, in Home Depot. And, and I, I just cut them long enough to go across whatever my, my, my glazing pan is, and so you don't end up with some you know, ugly blobs on the bottom from sitting on a stick. The glaze just drains right off these things. Okay, handy. Uh, overlaps. Don't, generally what I recommend is don't wait for the first color to dry before you add the second color. That's another cause of crawling. What, what can happen, not all of them, the water from the second glaze soaks into the first glaze and loosens, loosens the point where it's attached to the pot, and then both glazes crawl. So it really helps is I let the first glaze get partially dried, you know, to the point where it's handleable. You know, when you dip the glaze in or you get it where the shine goes away, and now you, you can completely handle it as long as you're gentle. It's not sticky or wet anymore. And then I put the second glaze on then because there's still water there, and I'm less likely to loosen that bond with the glaze underneath. Because okay. the crawling is, is caused, it shows up on the firing, but the crawling is caused by the loss of the bond between the dry glaze and the pot underneath. That's, that's, that's the underlying cause. So anything that can cause that is going gonna, is gonna to make it easier for crawling to happen. Whether it's dust or dirt or oil or water soaking through and loosening the bond. Or if you have a, or if the, the, here's another, I mean, they're weird combinations, but the first glaze I put on the pot has a lot of clay in it, but it's dry. So now I put the second glaze on it, but when the water hits the first glaze, the clay swells. The clay in, that absorbs the water that's in the glaze, and it swells, and it moves a little bit. It swells and expands, and when it does that, it loosens the bond. It loosens its attachment to the surface underneath. And the problem is, it looks great. I think, oh, I got a great glaze application. And then when you fire it, then the crawling shows up. Well, the crawling happened 
when you when you overlap the deletions. Oh, and one other thing to think about is when you're doing overlaps is that you might have two glazes that by themselves fire perfectly, and now you overlap them, and now the glaze runs. Because you can essentially, unless they, unless if they mix at all, you've created a third glaze. You've really got, you've got two different compositions, and if those two glazes can mix when they melt, you don't have two glazes, you've got a new glaze, you've got a third glaze there. And that third glaze may very well run at the temperatures, even though the other two don't. Just one other comment, if, you, if you're looking for clear glazes, um, to avoid cloudiness in cone 6 or 06 glazes, apply them thin. Because most cone 6 and 06 glazes contain some kind of borates, which tend to make cl glazes cloudy or milky if they're thick. So there's no reason for clear glazes to be, thin, to be thick. All you're trying to do is, 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 is seal the surface and make a transparent coating. So you don't need to have a thick layer. So if you tend to have a glaze that, that tends to make a little cloudiness, try applying it a little thinner. Uh, okay, glaze cleanup or touch up. You know, sometimes when you, 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 you finish your glaze piece and you've got finger marks or something you want to touch up, and you've been dipping or pouring the glaze, but you can't brush it on because you dip the brush in and you go to touch and it gets, and you end up with a blob. This is what you use. You take a little bit, you, this is the cheapest, then I won't, I'm gonna hide the brand since this is going in. This is, this is very inexpensive maple syrup, and the, the thing that's good about it is, there's nothing in it that's good for you. It's artificial flavor, artificial color, artificial sweetener, but the biggest thing is, it's cellulose gum, which is exactly what you want. This is a gum, and so what I'll do is, if I, let's say I have a pot I want to touch up, I'll take a little bit of the glaze, like two teaspoons, and put it in a dish, and I'll add one drop of maple syrup to it. And immediately it becomes like latex paint. It's brushable, you can spread it, you can smear it out. So I can put a nice little delicate touch-up spot without getting a big blob of glaze. So what I do is I go into the grocery store and I look for maple syrup and I look at the ingredients. And if you look at the ingredients, the third ingredient, this is water, sorbitol, which is artificial sweetener. The third ingredient is cellulose gum. Well, that's exactly what I want. I want a solution of cellulose gum in water. Here it is, except it happens to have maple flavoring with it. You know, I literally will, will put in like one little dish of it and you need like one drop and it immediately makes it brushable and it's great because you don't get that blob that you do when you try to you touch the brush and all the water is absorbed and all the glaze is absorbed right there the minute you touch it to the pot. And you can put on very nice thin coatings with that. Um, the other thing is, if, you, if you've ever, when you do the, you know, when you get some little blobs of glaze and you rub them off with your finger, make sure the glaze is completely dry before you try to rub them. Because if the glaze is really dry, they sand off beautifully. But if it's slightly damp, you just end up almost sort of polishing them. Yeah. So you've got to be patient again and let them dry completely before you do that little finger sanding trick. Okay. Glaze firing. I really recommend, I can't recommend any strongly, but use cones. Don't follow the temperature. Temperatures don't mean anything with respect to firing a glaze. You really need to use cones because just the same way when we talked about the clay and the glaze, they need time and temperature to mature adequately, which is, which is the only, that's what cones reflect. Glazes don't, I mean, they respond to hot, to hot and cold temperatures, but you really need to fire by cones. So really, use cones for glaze firing. If you don't use them for bits, that's fine. No one cares. You really need to fire with cones for glaze firing, okay? And the other thing is, just the last, last point to make is, learn your kiln, is that temperatures are not, in most kilns, temperatures are not necessarily uniform. 
Um, so you, even if they're not, that's okay, but learn your kiln, and then you can after a while say, okay, you have to put certain glazes in certain places. But as we talked about earlier, not all cone six glazes mature exactly at cone six. And if you know that, and you know what your glazes do, and you know, for instance, the hot at the top of your kiln is one cone hotter than the bottom, then you know where to put certain glazes. So you, you understand your kiln and you understand your glazes, and you can just you can work with it. You don't have to fight it, you just work with it. You say, okay. Like Randy's Red is good if it's a little hotter, I'll put that on the top, and this glaze will tolerate a little cooler or it doesn't matter, I can put it on the bottom. And so you can, you can use your, your kiln most efficiently if you, if you know both, if you know how, how your kiln works and how your glazes work. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, Give us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.